The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hi, this is the final episode of the Gift of Exoneration series for the end of 2014 and the beginning of 2015. Today, another astonishing case of a miscarriage of justice is revealed with the story of Julie Bomber. Hi, Julie. Thanks for being here. Yes, hello. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you, and I'm also excited about having two additional guests. But So before we talk about Julie's case, let me introduce you to Professor David Moran and Heather Kirk- Kirkwood. How are you? Just fine. Thank you. Hi, Francie. Thanks for having me. Hi, Professor. Professor Moran, you have such a large collection of degrees and credentials, it takes my breath away. Let me, <laughs> let me just say, and I don't know how you've imagined this, because I, I think you're only 15, but um, <laughs> let me begin by saying that you have a, a BS in physics at University of Michigan, you have a, a BA, a MA, and a CAS in mathematics at Cambridge, an MS in theoretical physics at Cornell University, and a JD magnum cum laude at Michigan Law. My goodness. <laughs> and, and I don't even know what a CAS is. What is that? It, it's a certificate of advanced study. It's sort of a British equivalent to a, a master's degree, basically the last degree you get before you work on your PhD dissertation. Okay. And are you planning on getting a PhD in mathematics? <laughs> No, I, uh, I I changed careers, as you can tell there. I was uh, I was headed towards a career in, in theoretical physics and uh, decided to go to law school instead and and to get to work on cases like Julie's where there is a strong scientific component has been really gratifying for me because I get to combine my my legal uh, training and my scientific training. Amazing. Well, you don't, you still have time to do that. You know, you can, you can give it some thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I think I'm done. But, and now, also, I mean, you were, you were upperclassman professor of the year for eight years when you were teaching at Wayne State. Um, you were Michigan's lawyer's weekly lawyer of the year, and then. And then, because that isn't enough, you were co-recipient of the Criminal Defense Attorneys of Michigan's Justice for All Award. And I guess uh, you've argued six times before the U.S. Supreme Court? Yep. And then in your spare time, you teach. <laughs> <laughs> well, those all go together. So okay. <laughs> uh, that's, not, that's not really that impressive because it's all it's all, uh, it's, it's all part of my day job. I don't really have a night job. Okay, well, it's, you must have very long days. And that isn't even all. So let's talk about the Michigan Innocence Project. Michigan Innocence Clinic. 
Uh, the, I'm sorry, Innocence Clinic. Okay. Yeah, the Innocence Innocence Project is actually a copyrighted or a trademarked uh, name of the organization in New York. Um, Okay. All right. That's good. Good uh, verification there. So, uh, tell me about that. You, you, and Bridget McCormick launched that project, that clinic. Right. We started that in uh, January 2009, and so it's it's a law school student clinic. It's one of uh, 14 clinics we have going at, at Michigan. So students work on these cases like Julie's case and other cases. And our focus is non-DNA cases because when we got started, there was already a project in Michigan doing DNA cases. Okay. And so we uh, took on the, the non-DNA cases, uh, which is the vast majority of criminal cases. There's no DNA to test. Uh, only really in rape cases and some murder cases is there likely to be Right. Any biological evidence. And so we have um, screened, since we started, uh, close to 4,000 cases, and we've taken 27, and so far we've uh, won nine of them, including, uh, including Julie's. Now, Julie's was not a case that we took by ourselves. We, we worked with other counsel who actually took the lead in, in getting Julie's conviction overturned, and then we got involved in the... Um, appeals, the prosecution appeals, and then the uh, subsequent retrial. That's just amazing. What an amazing accomplishment. Um, and so you've already cleared nine people right. out, of t- out of 27. That's, that's just incredible <laughs> statistics right there. Well, the others are all ongoing. So, we, so we have, uh, that means we have uh, 18 cases that are in various stages of litigation, some of which We've won rounds and the prosecution is fighting on and others of which we've lost rounds and we're appealing, uh, some of which are about to go to court, uh, one of which is, will be going to court probably this month. Mm. So, all stages. That's amazing. And so, uh, let's see, you've been, in, you've been in operation, what, four years? Six years. Six years. Okay. Six years, yep. Six years this month. That's wonderful. Uh, Good work, Dr. Moran, and, and uh, to you and Bridget McCormick. That's wonderful. Well, thanks. Heather, Bridget, Bridget's uh, no longer with me, I should say. She, uh, oh. she, got, she got elected to the Michigan Supreme Court in 2012, and so we're thrilled about that. That, she's, oh, that somebody, nice. somebody who understands wrongful convictions is now sitting on Michigan's highest court. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Dr. Moran, why don't you introduce us to Heather Kirkwood? Sure, and you should just call me Dave. Uh, I'm, okay. And I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Uh, oh, got I said doctor. I don't have I don't have that PhD. So uh, hey, uh, professor. Okay, Dave. <laughs> All right. Why don't you introduce us to Heather? Well, sure. Um, I don't know Heather's complete CV. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I know she, after a long and distinguished career in civil service in D.C., um, she retired, but she couldn't really retire, and she somehow, maybe Heather can explain this, got interested in shaken baby syndrome. And she has become the national go-to attorney expert on shaken baby syndrome. And so when we have these cases around the country where uh, innocence projects, innocence clinics, or or attorneys who get a shaken baby syndrome case think that it might be a a bad prosecution or a bad conviction, Mm -hmm. Heather is the person that everyone sends these files to. uh, And Heather looks them over and figures out, what the issues are and who the experts that should be consulted are. And so Heather, Heather became sort of a, a pro bono, one-woman repository of information and clearinghouse connecting lawyers and experts across the country. And so Heather helped us out on this case uh, tremendously. 
we we wouldn't have been able to to uh, get the the experts who reexamined this case without Heather's help. That's a wonderful uh, niche area. So Heather, I, I know uh, you took a kind of an unusual path. You graduated from Harvard with honors, but then you went. You were at the Federal Trade Commission. That's right. My husband and I were. Um, we met at, at at law school, so that gave us the flexibility as a two career family um, to do precisely what we wanted to do, and that was public service. So we were both at the Federal Trade Commission. We both like policy work more uh-huh. than legal maneuvering. Um, it, legal maneuvering is necessary to yeah. implement the policies, but our focus has always been on policy, so we both did policy work in D.C. for years, um, mostly antitrust. Then I took some time off when I had a sick child um, and returned to the, I actually did plaintiff's work, RICO cases, fraud cases, security mm. fraud, that type of thing. So I did that St- for about five still at, years. Still at the um, FTC, though. No, 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 no. That was private. The FTC. That was private. Yep, at, yep. Yep. Okay. And that, so I did several major um, RICO cases, criminal um, fraud cases, securities cases, things like that. And I'm happy to say that we, we, we did win all of them. They were all plaintiff's cases, and they were mostly David mm. versus Goliath cases. So um, I was used nice. to that. The, I was always David. Um, now, <laughs> well, now we have the real David, but <laughs> I was always David. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Um, and, 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 and everybody felt, loves a David and Goliath story. <laughs> yeah. So then I fell into the shaken baby because my daughter-in-law's brother had been um, convicted of assaulting, sexually assaulting his daughter. Mm-hmm. And the family felt he was innocent. I felt the real issue was whether he was innocent or guilty. He was not in prison. If he was guilty, we needed to keep the kids away. If he was innocent, he needed mm-hmm. to rejoin the family. So I did the same type of investigation on that um, as, as I have done in other cases, determined that he was indeed innocent. It was actually very, mm-hmm. very clear. Um, did a habeas petition down in Texas and had the conviction overturned. So that brought me into that realm. My next case um, brought to me by the same daughter-in-law was the Lopez case, which was featured on NPR and the child cases, um, also ProPublica and one other, forget which one. <laughs> that, um, there's that been a fr- lot of coverage. Frontline, maybe? Um, Frontline, that's right. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that, yeah. okay. So um, that one brought in Shaken Baby. So, um, and there I fell into it. Never did retire, actually. Um, I'm constantly references retiring. Yeah. I haven't retired yet, but... Um, and I'm not particularly retiring in person either. Okay. Well, that's it's an amazing specialty and, and a needed specialty. And um, and and really, thank you for for doing that. I mean, every, that's such a needed thing. And I I know from trying to locate experts myself, sometimes it's very difficult to find an expert for an area that you need. And the shaken baby syndrome is one of those. Um, so, Julie. Give us yes. the background leading up to you being charged with child abuse. Uh, the background in, re- in reference to how I came about. Right. Yeah, how you came about having your nephew. Uh, yeah, my sister, uh, my younger sister, subsequently, um, she was involved with um, some, uh, a type of lifestyle with narcotics. And um, she came to me at... Uh, one point in 2003 telling me that she was pregnant and that she uh, needed some assistance. So uh, through family prayer and discussion, I got everybody's support to... Uh, 
had agreed upon. Okay, so and you so, then were the caretaker. Did you actually adopt your nephew? No, I was in the process of it. You're in the process. Okay, so you were the sole caretaker of your six-week-old nephew. Right. Okay, and so tell us. I mean, I guess what happened is you found him lethargic. He wasn't eating, and you took him to the to the hospital. Well, he he had a difficult birth, and in fact, after uh, he was born, he was kept in the intensive care unit for about a week after his birth for some complications of eating and a few other things. And so we knew that he was um, going to be a problem child, if you will, in in a sense of eating and and thriving and whatnot. So we kept, uh, you know, close eyes on him, and um, I, I did my best, but at five weeks, he stopped eating for me, and after um, not taking down a full feeding for about 12 hours, I gave a, a call to a pediatrician and explained that I couldn't get him to eat, and so she instructed me to take him into the ER, and from that point on, um, just all hell broke loose, if you will. So, Julie, how old were you at the time? 27. You're 27 years old, and, and were you working? What was going on in your life? Uh, yeah, I was working at currently, or at the time, I was uh, uh, working for a private mortgage insurance as a loan officer. I was um, I was single. I didn't have any children of my own. I was just living the all American dream, if you will. You know, I was paying my taxes and working hard and playing hard. Um, you know, nothing out of the ordinary, if you will. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you took uh, you took his name was Philip. Baby, the baby's name was Philip. Yes. You took Philip into the ER, and then what happened? Uh, at the ER, they, uh, they went ahead and they said that they weren't sure what was really going on and that they wanted to transport him to a children's hospital, in which they did. And after they transported him to the children's hospital, we were told that they were going to, you know, he was going to undergo a series of tests and whatnot, and they would try to figure out what was going on. Okay. And... Um, that was a Friday evening, and then it was a Monday morning that I actually received a call from uh, the sheriff's department stating that uh, they wanted me to come in to uh, have a talk with them. And I had no idea it was even about Philip. I thought it was about Victoria because my sister, she Your ended sister? up relapsing, and she uh, actually went MIA that weekend, so I had no idea what was going on until I got to the sheriff's depart- department and... Um, so you actually thought you were going in about your sister? Actually, yes, because from her history, it wouldn't have surprised me. Okay. So what happened when you got to the sheriff's department? I was, I was you know, seated down, and uh, they immediately started asking questions about Philip. And I was a little confused because initially I thought I was there about Victoria and... Um, Probably about 20 minutes into the interview, I, I had a good idea of what they were going at. And um, I even asked them at one point, I, you know, I said, you know, my, my nephew's in the hospital. I just saw him yesterday, um, the child that you're explaining that's, you know, that's not my nephew. No, you know, they were trying to tell me that he had broken legs and arms and ribs and skull fractures and, you know, just... I think the one officer said, you know, it looks like a, a truck ran over him. You know, what did you do to this kid? You know, more or less. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, it wasn't nice. Well, and, and none of those things were true, were they? No, not at all. So the, the officer that was talking to you was, was making it up as he went. Right. Wow. So what happened next? Uh, they didn't initially charge me. They interviewed me a couple of more times. They gave me a lie detector test, which they told me I failed. I didn't feel that I failed. I asked to retake it. They denied me that. And then in February of 2004, I was informed by the, the attorney that was handling my adoption. Um, he informed me that I was being formally charged and that I needed to seek representation. Huh. Then, um, so then were you, were you arrested? Uh, so how yeah, I, had a, I, I, I was told, I was given 72 hours to turn myself in. Okay. So it, it, I did that, and I, at that time I also secured a, a retained an attorney, and I secured a bondsman. Okay, all right. So, you, so then you, you were uh, arraigned, but you were released on bond. Right. Okay. Okay. And were you out on bond the whole time your trial was going on the first time? Yes. Okay. Yeah, from the time of my arrest to the time of my conviction, about 18 months passed. All right. And, and where was your nephew at the time? Uh, they had him in um, custody. Uh, the state of Michigan, uh, of course, came in. They relinquished the rights of my sister. They uh, killed my adoption. And actually, when Philip was, I think, six months, they legally adopted him out, which I just uh, was completely blown away by, because how can you adopt out a child? I mean, I hadn't even been convicted yet. You know, it was like everything was already all, all played out, just right. however they wanted to play it out. Right. And do you know anything about Philip today? I know very little. No, I, I haven't had any contact with him since he was five weeks old. You don't know where he is? I know that he's here in the state of Michigan, but I know that his um, adoptive family, they uh, don't believe in my innocence. And as of five years ago, after the second trial, I haven't had any contact with anybody in that family. Oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. So so you found an attorney. Um, your trial lasted. From the, from the time your trial started, how long were you actually in trial? Uh, both trials, ironically, were about four weeks long. Four weeks. Okay. And nobody looked at any other reason for what happened to Philip. The prosecutors didn't look at for other uh, causes, and your defense attorney didn't either, correct? Uh, you're speaking about the first attorney. or The, the first, first attorney, trial, right. Right. Mm-hmm. I... Um, I went into, you know, the first trial, I believed that the heart of my defense was birth trauma. Um, my sister was given an excessive amount of Pitocin, and from the research that I had done, uh, you know, uh, with him being di- diagnosed with cerebral palsy and whatnot, I thought that they went hand in hand. Um, for whatever reason, my attorney dropped the ball and didn't present that as a, as my defense, my defense was that it didn't happen on my watch. Right. Um, so. Okay. Uh, uh, this is Dave. Yeah. Chiming in. Yes. So Julie's first attorney uh, believed in her innocence, but didn't really um, get the necessary 
power to uh, to uh, prove it. What he need, what he really needed to do was get an expert who was qualified to read the CT scans that had been taken of Philip's yeah. brain when he was in the hospital uh, at Children's Hospital in, uh, shortly after uh, after he crashed. And uh, he didn't get that. He got he got an expert who wasn't qualified to read the CT scans, and so. Uh, his strategy at the first trial then was, well, somebody abused this baby, but you can't prove oh. w- when it happened, so it could have been somebody other than Julie. Right. Okay. We, we have so much more to talk about. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today, Today, my guests are Julie Bomber who's recently exonerated. I think we have a, a dog with us, too, huh? We unfortunately <laughs> do. We keep locking him up, and he escapes. Okay. And uh, Professor David Moran and Heather Kirkwood, who were instrumental in getting Julie Julie's freedom from a crime she didn't commit. And so the CT scan, um, who, uh, Dave or Heather, who, wa- who wants to address what they would have found on the CT scan had it been looked at? I, I did the CT scan, so perhaps, perhaps yeah, I should ahead. do that one. Um, one of the first things I always do is look at the radiology. In a case in which the child is living, that is the only, quote-unquote, evidence of abuse. With, with the children like Philip, there are no external signs of abuse. Um, it looks like a perfect baby, um, beautifully raised, beautifully treated baby, um, adored baby. Um, 
So all of the signs are that they ascribe to shaken baby, which has been renamed, another story, um, are, are internal. So that's entirely radiology, nothing else, only radiology. So okay. in a living child, the radiology is the only evidence. There's no DNA, there's no blood, there's no bruising, there's no matching, nothing just the radiology. So I also think the radiology is absolutely critical when a child has died because frequently the child has been on life support. So with radiology, you're looking inside the child before the period of life support, which makes many changes, which can also be falsely or wrongly attributed Uh to Uh um, events occurring before Uh entering the hospital. They're actually events occurring after the hospital. So in Philip's case, the the one and only piece of evidence to me was the CAT scan MRI. I have been very fortunate that I have had several radiologists who will look at the scans for me. That's the first thing I do. I have them look blind with nothing other than the child's age so they can walk through the CAT scan. And we were very, very fortunate in this case to have an MRI. Um, and tell me what is it they see. Um, frequently, the results are nonspecific, non-dispositive. It doesn't tell us very much. On this one, I remember we looked at the CT, and the radiologist, and I can say his name here, um, it's Michael Krasnokutsky, who's an Army radiologist trained at Stanford, um, mm-hmm. can't do these cases while employed by the Army, but at that time, they had not yet made that decision. So mm. he, had, he, looked at the, he looked at the scans with me very thoroughly. He became somewhat, um, well, for Michael, who was extremely calm, um, but for Michael, a little excited at the CT, he said, I think I'm seeing something here. I think I'm seeing something. He said, this is looking a bit like it could be a clot at the base of the brain and at the back of the brain. Um, and he's, But the CT doesn't show this, you see, and often they don't do anything else. You need special tests. A CT, um, CTV, it's called, of the veins, MRV of the veins. We didn't have that. He asked if I had a CTV. I didn't have that. But I did have an MRI. And when we put the MRI on, we're going through the MRI, he said, bingo. He said, this is a clotted vein. This is venous sinus thrombosis. He has a major vein that has clotted here. Um, now, there are lots of risk factors for that. And as it turned out, um, he had virtually all of them. So this was a very, very clear diagnosis. It's actually been written up in, the ra- in a leading radiology journal as one of five cases of um, basically, we call it stroke in adults. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's usually a clotted artery, um, which are the veins, basically. They're not called veins, but the arteries that um, bring the blood into the brain. The veins take it out. Um, in adults, when we say mom's had a stroke, we're almost always talking about a clotted artery. So radiologists are very good at looking for that. But veins can also clot. And, and, and it, where is this vein look? Where is this located? Uh, um, this it, is a major vein. This is a, this, uh, the superior sagittal sinus. So that's a major vein. If you put your finger on the top of your head and you put it down to the back of your neck, you're tracing the path of the sagittal sinus. It's a huh. big vein into which all the small ones dump. And so if that one is clotted, um, you cannot get that used up toxic blood. Um, into that vein and draining. So you have a backup. It's just like the kitchen sink. You have mm-hmm. a backup. You can't mm-hmm. get any more blood out of the vein. Therefore, it's prevented from going in. The toxic used up blood begins to seep into the brain tissue itself. And you have what you have with Philip, a, a, a serious venous stroke. And that, can, and that cannot be caused by an injury? 
Very, very rarely. I have one case in which um, it's um, the Astling case, which was also covered by NPR um, and also by local television stations. That's a very unusual case in which the child um, fell on a tile floor, hit his head. We were able to trace. um, We we could see it. It did swell. You could see the lump on his head. No swelling with Philip. No sign of impact at all, Um, other than the skull fracture, which was birth. But on Astling, you could see that. So what happened was that it damaged that same sagittal sinus. Um, platelets rush in to clot it. It's a different type of thrombosis, but uh-huh. it, um, in a child, it's very immature, and it can end up clotting that sinus. So um, they estimate that 4% of venous strokes in children result from minor head trauma, not major head trauma, minor uh-huh. head trauma, um, or are, are associated with is a better way to say it. Um, and we think we track that in Asplen. 96% are just like Phillips. Frankly, when I, well, little one, sick, other, little dehydrated. Okay. one of the remarkable things for me was reading this first trial transcript where you had the two doctors from Children's Hospital in Detroit who testified for the prosecution, and they, they missed the venous sinus thrombosis in the CT scan. Mm-hmm. So they, they did testify about the CT scans. But they, they actually had entirely inconsistent theories as to what had happened. One of them said, well, the baby had been, just been violently shaken. The other was that the baby had been slammed into something hard, uh, causing the, uh, the bleeding in the brain. Mm. But well, the remarkable thing was that both of them estimated that the injury had been inflicted between 12 and 24 hours before the CT scan was taken. And, uh, in fact, the baby had been in the hospital for more than 30 hours at the point that the CT scan was taken, and they didn't know that. Oh, uh, interesting. And, and they, were, they were looking at the CT scan, looking at the, the apparent freshness of the blood, and they were, they were right about that. The blood was fresh because while, while Philip was sitting in the hospital waiting for a CT scan, which for reasons I don't understand they never got around to for many hours, he was bleeding out from the stroke. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, when we saw that, we said, well, that, that, you know, that, that should clear Julie right there because this blood is fresh. Sure. And yet the baby, the baby had been in the hospital for more than a day before, the, uh, before they took the CT scan, which showed fresh blood. Hmm. And, and now, Heather, you mentioned, um, you mentioned a skull fracture. He actually mm-hmm. suffered a skull fracture he at birth. He did have a skull fracture, and that was a, a major issue because the slamming part came from the skull fracture, but the, and, and it's very difficult to date skull fractures. The same um, Dr. Krasnokutsky, when I take him a skull fracture, he often says, um, um, skull fracture can't date next case. Um, <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> but in this case, he could date it. And in this case, again, he said, but wait a second, let me bring that up. You, you see, we're looking at a, at a huge screen CT at the time. So you're, right. you're, you're looking at these pictures in, in incredible detail. It's, not, um, it's like those big screen TVs, only longer. So we're looking at it in incredible detail, and we focused in on the skull fracture. And what was interesting about this skull fracture is that it had rounded edges. So when you have a skull fracture, it's like breaking a teacup. Um, you know, you, you have straight lines. You can piece them together. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look closely, you can see right. how they piece together. Um, these had rounded edges. You can't piece those together. It takes quite a bit of time for a skull, for bone to remodel. So this had remodeled by at least six weeks. Even the um, prosecution's expert at the first trial, at least one of them agreed that the skull fracture was old and was probably a birth injury. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so, th- so, so that really wasn't part of their case to huh. prove that, that the skull fracture wasn't something the prosecution could rely on convictually. It was, it was just the bleeding in the brain and the, and the ble- uh, bleeding in the back of the eye. That was the main thing. And, of course, the jury is faced with a child, a baby, that is severely injured, and they're, they're given all this stuff, and so they, they convicted Julie. Yep. Their conviction rate has been extraordinarily high, and people always tell me that that's because uh, Philip didn't die, but in, in, when they're faced with a dead um, baby, people want an answer. And I yeah. said, I, I don't really believe that's true. I believe it's true only when they're told the child has been assaulted or murdered, because I'm Canadian, grew up in a small town, and babies died there too, and children died there too. And as I've always said, people took casseroles in sympathy. They did not have trials. So I think the problem that's arisen here is that they're told the child is severely injured. Now, severely injured is often used in the, um, it sounds as if it's a medical determination. Medically, a person who has a stroke is severely injured. That's right. Right. But no one, if you hear that your mother has had a stroke, you don't say who did it, I'm going to get them. Right. That's not what you say. That's right. But yet that's what's happening with children. Yeah. Well, because it's a, and it's a baby. If it's a child, you know, I mean, you automatically sympathize with the child. I mean, you, and, and you, you, you just can't avoid doing that. You just do. In Sid's death, you also sympathize. Yeah, right, right. That's true. Okay, no. so, um, all right. So, Julie, you were convicted. Yes. And you were sentenced to 10 to 15 years. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine... What must have been going through your head that day? It was absolutely surreal. Absolutely surreal. Um, I can imagine. I, I can imagine it right now as if it just did take place yesterday because it, it was such you know such a profound moment in my life. Um, uh, you know i I didn't uh, I didn't air my family's dirty laundry, if you will. So a lot of people who were aware of the adoption, they didn't know the, the, uh, the biological mother was my sister, who was actually um, a, nar- a narcotics addict at the time. Uh-huh. And so um, uh, ultimately when all of this started, of course, my life just continued on. You know, I just, you know, even, even after being charged, you know, being out on bond and whatnot, I didn't allow this to consume my life. I knew I was innocent and I believed in the criminal justice system. I, I didn't never fathom being found not guilty, or excuse me, being found guilty. So ultimately that day, uh, the, when the jury came back with the um, verdict, they came back probably around 3 o'clock, I think. But I had for that evening, I had a 6 p.m. Uh, dental appointment scheduled for my 7-year-old nephew who I was co-raising. And then the next day I had a board meeting scheduled. I was the president of my Qantas club. That just shows that it was like, okay, if, if you're going to find me not guilty, I'm just going to keep on moving. Right. That's the way I, you know, I, and so for the, for them to say, okay, guilty, now your life stops as you know it, and you're taken immediately into custody, and there's no time to prepare for it, and it's just, it's, it's absolutely terrible, absolutely terrible. It was, um, very horrific, very horrific. Oh, um, Dave, when did you folks get involved? 
Well, we got involved quite a bit later. So Julie was convicted in 2005, sentenced to 10 to 15. And we actually got involved late in 2009. My clinic opened in early 2009. And we, we just happened to hear about this case from one of Julie's prior attorneys who um, she got two new attorneys uh-huh. uh, after she told her story to a, a nun who was visiting her in prison. And, and then that nun got uh, a, a Professor Charles Lugosi from Ave Maria Law School, a Catholic law school, involved in the case. And he, in turn, got Carl Marlinga, um, who's now a judge, involved in the case. And um, through Heather, uh, there was a readings of the CT scans, and, and uh, the diagnosis was venous sinus thrombosis, not child abuse. And so they went back to court, and the judge had ordered a new trial for her. Um, and Mr. Lugosi talked to me and, and told me that the, there was a good chance the prosecution was going to appeal. Would we, uh, could we take over the case and, and defend the judge's decision to grant Julie a new trial? And so Bridget McCormick and I quickly reviewed the case and within a matter of days said, yes, this is absolutely a case we want to take. Mm-hmm. So we defended the appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals and the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, which upheld the judge's decision to grant Julie a new trial. And then to our amazement, the prosecution announced that they were going to retry Julie even though it was really clear by this point that simply the original doctors had missed the diagnosis, that this was venous sinus thrombosis. But they, um, they decided to do the retrial, so we co-counseled the case with Carl Marlinga, um, and, uh, and, and that trial also lasted four weeks and, and uh, ended in a very quick acquittal at the end of four weeks of testimony, in which six, six very uh, eminent uh, forensic pathologists pediatric neuroradiologists, neurologists testified for Julie, all pro bono. They all came to Michigan and testified for free um, that uh, this was, this was a, a misdiagnosis of venous sinus thrombosis. And the jury hearing that evidence very quickly acquitted. Well, now, um, am I incorrect in this? Julie, weren't you exonerated first and then the, uh, then the prosecutors appealed your the turn that the case was over. Well, well, no, Let in, me back in, up. Wasn't your November, case overturned? No, in November of two thousand and nine, my my conviction was overturned. Okay. And my attorneys, uh, I I was informed that they were told as a gentleman's agreement, if you will, with the prosecutor that if the judge had overturned the conviction, they wouldn't retry. They would just let it be. But uh, subsequently, they lied, if you will, and so uh, immediately after. The conviction was overturned. Um, I was I, I was still in custody, and I remained in custody until December the ninth, when I had to uh, uh, appear in court for a bond hearing. And so, uh, what that what happened there is where they just basically recharged me. I was rebooked at the county jail and put back on bond. And this time around, I don't know why, but they wanted to put a tether on me, so they did that. And uh, then then. Uh, I started preparing for my second trial. Yeah. So, so from the time you found out that your case was being overturned till you were recharged, how long was that? I'm sorry. From the time what? From, from the time you found out your case was overturned till then you were recharged, how long a time was that? Just like from the, the, it was November the 30th to uh, December the 9th, just a couple of weeks. 
And then, I, and then after I was recharged, then I awaited for my second trial. After my second trial, I was exonerated the day I was found not guilty. I was right. officially exonerated, if you will. Okay, and you said you were, you were on a tether. So were you in home, home detention or were you in custody? Uh, no, I, I was on, I was on uh, home custody, if you will. Okay, okay. <sighs> I, <laughs> it, it's just uh, it's beyond comprehension. It's just beyond comprehension. So, um, Dave and Heather, were you involved in the second trial then? Yes, yes both, we of both, were. Were. both yeah. of you were. Both of you were. Heather, did you testify in the second trial? No, no, I didn't. Um, I sat with counsel table. I sat at counsel table with Cara Merlinga, and we would go over the evidence the night before. Um, so uh, I was intimately involved in the trial, and then um, a number of David's students, and I believe David did an, um, an examination of the ER doctor that was excellent. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it, it was a group effort, um, lots of preparation. Um, I, I'd like to say here, though, that uh, one point that should be made here is that venous sinus thrombosis um, and especially cortical vein thrombosis, and I know that sounds a bit technical, but the cortical veins are the small veins that dump into this major vein. Okay. Um, they are very easy diagnoses to miss. They're very, very easy. And if you aren't looking for them, you will miss them. I am seeing many of these cases. Julie's is only one, and I know it sounds hard to say in this context, but it was a lucky one. They're giving automatic life sentences. We've got people on death row, all for all for um, in which they did not do the correct tests. They didn't do an MRI. We could not have confirmed it without the MRI. It was highly suspicious for it, looked like, but we could not have confirmed it without the MRI. It was very fortunate we had a clear, clear MRI. And it, even so, you can see what happened. So there's a, a major problem. Um, I would say there are hundreds of cases a year of venous sinus thrombosis or cortical vein thrombosis that are being misdiagnosed, just like Julie's, and the penalties are much harsher. The second problem is that we're not treating them. Um, Hillary Clinton, I don't know if you remember, had transverse sinus thrombosis about a year or mm-hmm, two ago, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. said they were very lucky it was caught because she could have died. Yes or be brain damaged. That is right. But she was given heparin, which is an anticoagulant, to break up the thrombus. This is not right. happening to the babies. So, huh. we're, so there's a problem both with the false convictions and not treating this condition or even thinking about how to treat it. So that's all I'll say on VSD. It's one of my favorite well, topics. Well, yeah, and, well, and let's just go back. You had mentioned earlier um, during the show that they've changed the name from shaken baby syndrome um, and it's called something else now. Yes, abusive head trauma. Abusive head trauma. Because they, the, the case for shaking in 2011, two of the leading proponents of shaken baby syndrome, Mark Diaz at Hershey and Carol Jenny, now at my very own um, Seattle Children's, um, said in the book, basically, it was in Mark Diaz's chapter, that no one had yet marshaled a coherent argument to support shaking as a mechanism of abuse. They had been testifying to that from the 1970s, picking up in the 1990s, um, and still do today. But yet, as of 2011, they had been testifying to, to a phenomenon that did not yet have an evidentiary basis. And that's where Dave comes in. He's continually horror-stricken at the lack of an evidentiary basis, as yeah. am I. So well, this, and was, it, this and is it, speculative. 
and just the name by itself is provocative. It, just, it is. very <laughs> provocative. And that's yeah. the same with abusive head trauma. It's yeah. very provocative. Um, so basically, they simply did a name switch. And they said, we don't know what causes this. We don't know what they're doing. All we know is that the baby was well, and now the baby is not well, so you must have done something to the mm-hmm. baby. It was, it's a high, scientific hypothesis. Uh, in the early 1970s, um, uh, doctors came up with this hypothesis that if you see a baby that has a subdural hematoma, which is bleeding in the brain, retinal hemorrhages, so blood in the back of the eyes, and cerebral edema, then that is, that is evidence that the baby has been violently and abusively shaken. But it, it's a hypothesis. And unfortunately, it became gospel uh, in medical schools, and only recently has the hypothesis started to be challenged. And what we've discovered is, first of all, that there are many other conditions like venous sinus thrombosis, like shortfalls uh, where a, a toddler or a baby lands on his or her head that can produce those exact same symptoms without any, uh, without any abuse. Uh, rickets can also, is another example of a medical condition that can mimic the signs of shaken baby syndrome. Uh, and the other problem is that there's still no evidence yet that the violent shaking of the baby can produce those symptoms without, leave, without leaving other physical signs. And in particular, um, neck damage, vertebrae damage would be expected if you shook a baby um, violently enough to produce that kind of brain damage. And yet these are cases typically where there is no other evidence. There's no external abuse at all, no, no external signs of abuse. It's just these signs inside the brain. Um, and unfortunately, some doctors are still testifying today that it could only be shaken baby syndrome. Nothing else could possibly mm-hmm. produce it. And that we do know to be false. That yeah. part of the hypothesis we know for certain is, is false, that there are other causes because there have been documented cases. Babies have, been, have fallen on video and then been taken to the hospital, and, and they've had the three signs of, of shaken baby syndrome. Right. And so was, um, Julie, was your sister using, um, using drugs while she was pregnant? Um, according to her uh, uh, medical records, um, there was there was no trace of any drugs after a certain trimester. Heather, do you remember what what was the actuality remember, in that? But I remember very clearly that um, that your sister was very creative on drug sampling. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Okay. So so my question is 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 there any possibility that the Of course, there's possibility. Do I have actual knowledge? No. Yeah, I don't have actual knowledge. No. Yeah. So, uh, so there's no evidence that drugs would have affected uh, this kind of a situation. No, but Philip was a very sickly baby at the outset. He spent the first week of his life in neonatal intensive care. Uh Um, He was not thriving, and and Julie took him in several times during those first six weeks of his life after he was released from neonatal ICU um, with problems. He was not not, uh, uh, eating properly. Um, He didn't seem well, and so uh, there were were a lot of problems with Philip early on, and, and whether those were related to the mother's drug use, it's hard to say for sure. And Let me mention one. Could I? Could I mention ahead, one yeah. more sign? Sure. Yes, um, he had. He he shook. Um, he had what 
what a what a professional would call seizures from the time he was born, but those, right. those they are those very mini seizures. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to mention two things. One was that um, um, when I asked one of the a friend of Julie who had seen the baby, it was actually the mother of a friend, and I asked her, "Did you notice anything about the baby?" And she said, "Well, it was very difficult to feed the baby. I couldn't feed the baby. Only Julie could feed the baby, and in tiny amounts. He was very pale." Um, and I said, anything else? No. Open-ended questions, anything else? No. And so I said, you never noticed him having any type of odd movement. And she said, oh, you mean like when he'd shiver all over as if he was cold, but it wasn't cold, it was hot? Like that. Oh, and I said, yes, wow. <laughs> that, like that. And indeed, when the hospital called Julie's mother and told her, when, when Philip was in the hospital, they called and the doctor, one of the ones who testified, told her it was shaken baby syndrome. And her answer was, yes. Yes, thank heaven someone's listening. She thought he said shaking baby syndrome. Oh. And someone was finally investigating this, these abnormal seizure-type activities. Oh so my gosh. this had been going on from birth. And so this, and seizures, this type of seizure is um, a precursor to venous sinus thrombosis, or he could have been thrombosing throughout. Huh. Amazing. Amazing. So they're looking at the signs, but looking at them backwards, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And at the first trial, was his medical, his difficult birth and his initial medical uh, diagnoses when he, she was taking him back and forth to the doctor, was that brought into the trial? Did anybody no. testify to that? No, none of that, none of that was brought in. Um, like I said, from the beginning, I was screaming birth trauma, um, and so uh, I, I know that we would often go to court and try to get the orders for the hospital to release the birth records and whatnot, and mysteriously those orders would disappear. Uh, I think we did get uh, uh, some of the evidence, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't permissible because it was brought in too late. You know, the trial had already started, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, everybody had their eyes and ease the way they wanted it, so... Yeah. Um, and be- because of the misdiagnosis, uh-huh. uh, which wasn't challenged by the defense at the first trial, really most of that stuff was irrelevant at the first trial. If the defense wasn't denying that somebody had abused the baby, then it really didn't matter uh, that, right. the baby, well, yeah, that, that the baby was ill to begin with. Uh, one of the things that was brought out at the second trial was that the baby um, had dystocia. In other words, he had been stuck in the birth canal during the birth. And we were able, able to prove that because Julie was there for the birth and Julie took a video, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, which documented that at one point during the delivery, um, Philip became stuck in the mother's birth canal. And uh, dystocia is associated with the type of skull fracture that Philip had. I was just going to say that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Huh. He was also very bruised, and that was not noted in the delivery records, um, which is often the case. And, and it, but I and had pictures. Turned, well, you had pictures, but, but, but more important, you had videoed it. Um, they actually didn't allow it, um, videoing, and Julie had, had put her camera phone, her recording on, on, and so she had that. Um, she had the discussions, and at one point, then one nurse says to another, um, you, know, "You know, look at this. You know, he, something like he's bruised." And the other one said, "I didn't drop him." And and there's that discussion. There's a discussion yeah. later as they're taking the baby to the mother. Um, you know, don't worry, he's bruised. When the grandparents um, come in, don't worry, he's bruised. None of that made it into the medical records. And had Julie not had that, we would not have that record of bruising. There's one brief reference later 
um, in, in a note by a very observant nurse maybe a day or two later. But without that, that recording, it would not have hit the medical records that that was present at birth and very noticeable, um, both to the nurses and to Julie, the mother, the grandparents, everyone. That was not in the records, and my experience is that that is common. It is never put in the records. It should be. Interesting. And, uh, and Julie, did, I have to ask you this. Did you tell your first attorney about this video that you had? Did he ever see it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't shy away from anything because, like I said, when I initially was charged, you know, you start troubleshooting it. Okay, you start going through with, okay, uh, you know, first thing is, okay, Victoria. Okay, now even one of Victoria's worst days, you know, in uh, worst moments, uh, nothing like that. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe Brandon, the, you know, the older brother who's seven years old, was he left alone with him? And then you, you go through that, and then, okay, well, maybe the elderly grandparents. No, and then you go through that, and you just go through your mind, and then it's like, okay, well, then let's go to the birth. And then I start, like I said, I started doing research, and when I knew that she had been giving SX, excess amounts of Pitocin to actually induce the birth, when he was two weeks out from his delivery date, that still is, like, mind-boggling to me. Um, uh, then, uh, and then how it was associated with the, um, the cerebral palsy. For my whole time that I was incarcerated, that was my belief was that, that his injuries were sustained from that from his, from his birth. It wasn't until Heather and her calvary, if you will, uh, uh, under, you know, pulled out the, you know, the, what was really happening was, the, you know, when he was actually stroking in the hospital and had he been given something to relieve that pressure, you know, who knows what his, um, today's, his quality of life would be like today. So you can only theorize. You must have been so relieved when you found out what the real cause was. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I can imagine that... All this time you thought something had really happened to him and you found out that it really wasn't true. Well, I didn't believe anything had happened to him other than something, you know, during his birth. Yeah. But, you know, it was just, yeah, it was good to know actually what, you know, what was going on. So. Yeah, Julie was lucky in that sense, very unlucky all this terrible things happened to her, but lucky in the sense that ultimately there was a diagnosis, there was a clear diagnosis as to what this was. Otherwise, Julie might still be in prison. Uh, this would be the year she'd be coming up for parole, 2015. Yeah, but I wouldn't be granted it. You know that. She wouldn't be granted it because she would have been maintaining her innocence. Right. right. So she- yeah. That's one of the things you have to do is admit your guilt, right, when you go up for parole? Right. Yep. Yeah. Indeed. Wow. Yes. So, Julie, today... Um, I I know you really value your freedom, and you have your own business. Uh, yeah, so how, screen how printing and embroidery. Oh, yeah. it's not doing too bad. You know, I have a little competition, but that's you know that's expected. So it's it's a it's a form of secondary income, if you will. And have you had any backlash from? Uh, we're going to have to, I just realized we're almost to the end of the hour. Have you had any backlash of people that, that still believe, other than the people that have Philip, still believe that you're guilty? No, I haven't directly experienced anything. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I so appreciate oh, the opportunity to share your story, Julie. Um, this, is, this is just amazing. 
Thank you, Professor Moran, and thank you, Heather, um, for the important work you do. Thank you so much. It's it's so valuable, and I'm so happy that we're able to feature this on the show so people, more people hear about it. Absolutely, anything to raise awareness. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We have to we have to close uh, again. Uh, so gratified that you were able to be here today. Join me again next week, then, as we declassified more real stories of real investigations, in this case, an exoneration. Every Thursday morning, I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 